You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 73. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the 10th Doctor story, The Girl in the Fireplace. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? So, The Girl in the Fireplace. Uh, it's one of those uh, episodes that sort of stands out for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people... Uh, market as one of their favorites. Um, some people don't like it as much, uh, partly I think for the same reasons, which is it's really uh, heavy in the uh, doctor as boyfriend genre. Uh, <laughs> uh, and heavy as in it definitely is doctor as boyfriend genre. So, uh, but let's, you know, it's so a little bit of background. So the episode is the first uh, 10th Doctor season. As we said before, we're going through that season. Uh, it aired on May 6, 2006, which is just about, actually, it's it's 12th anniversary as we record this. We're about a week ahead of that uh, as we're recording. Um, and this is the, about the this is the fourth episode of this season. So we've really gotten into the, the heart of this run where about, I uh, forget how many episodes are in this season, but we're about in the middle part, portion. Um, and Mickey has joined the team here. And so Mickey is now traveling with the doctor and Rose. And as we remember, Rose wasn't all, all that excited about that. Uh, as we finished school <laughs> reunion, uh, she kind of liked having the, you know, the special time with just the doctor. And so, um, so yeah, so uh, maybe we could listen to the sound of the trailer and then we can get into what this episode entails. The clock on the mantle is broken. It is time. creatures. I don't even think they're human. We can't stop them. There is a man coming to Versailles. He has watched over me my whole life and he will not desert me tonight. What are you talking about? What man? The only man, save you, I have ever loved. I need to find out what they're looking for. There's only one way I can do that. You are inside my mind. A spaceship from the 51st century stalking a woman from the 18th. The monsters and the doctor. It seems you cannot have one without the other. You are merely the nightmare of my childhood. And if my nightmare can return to plague me, then rest assured, so will yours. So, the girl in the fireplace. So, uh, just a quick recap of what's going on. The Doctor and Rose and, and Mickey travel to the 51st century, where they encounter this ship. They don't know the name of it yet, but it appears to be derelict of, uh, in some way. Uh, in fact, they never know the name of it. Right, exactly. The only, in fact, the only the viewers get to know the name of it at the end of the episode, um, and they they board it, trying to you know, and then they find trying to find out what's going on. There's no apparent crew on board, um, and they find this fireplace, an active fireplace off the bridge. And long story short, they they figure out that they're portals, time portals to the uh, to 18th century France, and. Um, the doctor encounters this woman first as a child and later as as a, a as an adult uh, on the other side of this fireplace and other portals. And um, becomes her boyfriend immediately. 
<laughs> yes, which yeah. is not at all creepy since she was nine years old when he first met her. Um, uh, shades of uh, seven years old, I think. Was she seven? Uh, okay, uh, but it's sort Something of shade like shades of Amy Pond here, yeah. uh, as we'll see with the Eleventh Doctor. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Um, there, so this episode is by Stephen Moffat, and it really lays down some elements that uh, he's going to use again. One of them is the doctor showing up in a little girl's life and then reappearing much later, years later in her history and her having a fixation on him and thinking of her, him as her imaginary friend. And, and she's the girl who waited. And originally it's this uh, girl, uh, Renette Poisson, who grows up to become Madame de Pompadour, the chief mistress of the King of France. And then when the 11th Doctor shows up, one Doctor later, we have Amy Pond in that exact role. Only she doesn't become the chief mistress of the King of France because there isn't a King of France in the 21st <laughs> century. Um, but then also this episode lays down the clockwork droids. And the clockwork droids here are on the ship uh, the SS Madame de Pompadour, which we, the viewer, learn, but the characters don't. And then in the Twelfth Doctor's opening story, um, so two Doctors later, also by Stephen Moffat, he brings back the clockwork droids, and this time they're from the sister ship, the SS Marie Antoinette. Right, exactly. So in, in that sense, he he brings them back. He's not sort of... It's it's a little different in that he's not sort of just stealing wholesale uh, and reusing the the plot like he does with a Amy Pond. He sort of connects it to this story uh, in that case, which which is still reusing something that he had before. Um, I, I guess it it bears you know mentioning who Madame de Pompadour is. I mean, she's a real historical figure, mm -hmm. kind of fascinating, um, kind of a, a sad story. She was born a commoner. Mm -hmm. And um, of uh, uncertain heritage, uh, her uh, on on who her father actually was. Um, she at what was it at nine? Uh, the reason I said he met her at nine was at nine years old. She returned home from uh, where she she was at a boarding school at an Ursuline convent, and was returned home at nine years old. And a fortune teller predicted that she would one day reign over the heart of a king. And that's where she got her nickname, Renette, meaning Which little means queen. Little, little queen. But little queen, she right. didn't she didn't have it, that nickname, until age nine, and the doctor meets her at age seven. So apparently in the Hooniverse, she got the nickname two years earlier. Right. And um, Or it's just a continuity error. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Stephen um, Moffat have continuity errors? That never happens. No, mm -hmm. not at all. Uh the, the, Stephen Moffat, there's a thing called Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> well, there Which may it, not have been in 2006. It was there. Was, still was Wikipedia in 2006. I'm fairly certain of it. Um, the uh, the um, the sad thing about her is that from that moment on, she was groomed to become the mistress of Louis the Fifteenth, starting at nine years old. So it's such uh, to me, this is a sad story. And to be a mi the mistress, yeah. you know, it's not not the queen because she's a commoner. He had a queen. And he already had a mistress, and she, she displaced that mistress. And it was just kind of a sad, uh, I don't know. Yeah, he had apparent. I mean, uh, I guess a lot of mistresses. It's just right. she was mm -hmm. the chief one, and there was even an official title for that right. in French. <laughs> uh, if the king openly had a, a 
particular mistress that was favored. She was known as the chief mistress. And so this is a case of, I mean, they play it like she's this romantic historical figure in this episode. But in, if you th really think about it, I mean, this is extreme manipulative child grooming mm -hmm. yes. to take this small girl and groom her to be a political you know, mis uh, mistress of this powerful man. Right. I mean, that's that's really dark. Yeah, and they, they actually kind of hint at it in the episode where she's talking to her companion friend, whoever the other the other woman, and I love him, but I've never met him. Right, right. Kind of hint at that that she was prepared for this role before she even her whole met life. Him. Yeah, she became a very powerful figure in France. I mean, she. She had the ear of the king. She was valued as an advisor and an aide to the king, uh, even more so than I think the queen. Um, she was a, a patron of the arts and of philosophers. Uh, she she mm -hmm. uh, patronized including Voltaire. Voltaire, right? Yeah, um, and she died at age forty-two of tuberculosis, right? Which is uh, part of the story in, uh, in Doctor Who. So. Um, so much of what, you know, barring the, the fudging of a couple of ages or dates, much of what we of what is portrayed about her in this story is pulled directly from history. I mean, this is a real historical figure. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is she is not the mistress of Louis the Sixteenth. The queen is not uh, Marie Antoinette. This is a century before that. Um, mm -hmm. This is Louis the Fifteenth. So that I think that it's it is the potential for, for people who are not you know, uh, straight up on French history yeah. to, um, so, to get that mistake. So this is not the let them eat cake lady who also never said, let them eat cake. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a whole thing. Um, so that's, that's the real Madame de Pompadour. Um, so, and, and so we're in this, this milieu of, of sort of, a, I mean, as you can kind of get this sort of decadent France, I mean, France was at the height of her, of her influence, uh, her Royal influence, um, we're a long way from uh, Saint Louis, the king, who who was a sainted figure of of the uh, the Middle Ages. Liter literally, yeah. yes, exactly, literally. Um, and so this is yeah, this is decadent France that in in a century will collapse uh, under its own weight in revolution. Um, so so that so that sort of sets the scene as that the doctor intrudes on, and. What we have on the ship is these clockwork robots, which was kind of strange that the ship would create clockwork robots. I mean, what was with this 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 ship so advanced, so futuristic, and it's it creates clockwork robots? What what what's the was there a rationale for that in the show? It's just a deliberate irony. I mean, I don't think they provide an on-screen explanation, but you know, it's it's so it's neat the idea that you could have something as sophisticated. As, uh, you know, a robot that's this intelligent and able to to and this capable and it's driven by clockwork mechanisms. Mm -hmm. um, now, kind of going back to steampunk type. Yeah. Look. Yeah. It's a very steampunk thing. Um, I, I would assume the explanation is what looks to us like clockwork is really not. It's really some kind of advanced electronics. But in the 51st century, electronics has gotten so advanced, they can make it look retro mm -hmm. when, in fact, it's not. I mean, or that certain, would be my rationalization. Yeah, certain components could actually be clockwork. 
but right. you know the main robot itself you know like the what we see is the clockwork could be the power generation for the robot or something like that you know right or the the mechanical motions you know yeah yeah so also there there was a real life inspiration for this um there was a um there was a, a, a an animatronic thing back in the 1800s that was in England called the Turk and it was it was like a robot it was very primitive obviously and it was known for playing chess and of course and of course there was no way you could have a robot play chess back then it was really a hoax but it was a sensation in uh, in England at the time and the Turk was very popular um, and Stephen Moffat knew about it and used that as an inspiration for the clockwork droids. Uh, incidentally, the, the Turk has also influenced Doctor Who uh, in other ways because there's an, an eighth Doctor Big Finish audio called the Silver Turk where the Doctor uh, encounters the Turk and discovers it's a Cyberman. Oh, <laughs> that'd be a good one. Um, so you have these clockwork robots um, that the doctor once again you know, encounters these deadly monsters of the week and finds them beautiful. Uh, mm -hmm. Just that that aspect of the doctor's personality, and um, the they're they're essentially the ship is damaged, and they 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 seem to have been poorly programmed yeah. as repair, repair droids. They obviously uh, haven't heard of Asimov's three rules of robotics in the 51st century. Yes, yeah. first, do no harm. Because um, they've, they've been repairing the ship with biological parts from the crew. Yes. they didn't have the parts. <laughs> That's right. actually kind of a kind of a, a impressive scene where the light dawns of what they mean by they have, we didn't have the parts. It's like, right. oh. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. ran out of parts. Um, and they need a, a component for the ship's uh, computer, uh, a central processing unit. And so they the only thing that will do is, since this is the SS Madame de Pompadour, is to have the central processing unit of Madame de Pompadour, i.e. Yep. the brain uh, right. of, of so, the woman. So they've been punching holes back in time so they can retrieve it from the 17th century. Mm. Right. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> So you have this this sort of creepy robots, you know, especially like, like the creepiest one was when she's a girl and it's under the bed. I mean, it's mm -hmm. the whole, you know, monsters under the bed thing yeah. <laughs> that, yep. that we I mean, Moffat always goes for the the most base of our fears. He, he really mm -hmm. like without without having to be gory, without having to be graphic, he really knows how to creep us out. Whether whether it's these or the angels or or what have you, and he does it again with these uh, maniacally grinning clockwork creatures. Yeah, they have these kind of clown masks on, sort of. You know, if you've seen like uh, V for Vendetta, they have a. It's almost like a French version of the Guy Fawkes mask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's and it's maybe something that would be used in a in a carnival, uh, in a in a, a carnival in a. Um, a, a ball, um, a masked ball. Yeah. Yeah. A and ball. by the way, I've never seen V for Vendetta. I just know the mask. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anonymous. Um, so uh, the Renette seems to have this unusual effect on the doctor, especially uh, when he encounters her when she's older um, as an adult. Um, he seems to get easily flustered around her and she seems unusually prescient, unusually perceptive 
about him and about things that she shouldn't really ought to be. Uh, when we, especially when we get to the point where he does a sort of mind meld. Is this a is this a thing we that we've established on? Doctor yeah, Luke? yeah. In fact, uh, the telepathy of Time Lords is something that they established quite early on. Um, there was an early, an episode in the first Doctor's time where his granddaughter Susan. Uh, her telepathy became very active, and um, it was a, seri a series called The Sensorites, where she used it to communicate with an alien race. And it's periodically been used in Doctor Who history. It, it's not common. Apparently, they're not as telepathic as Betazoids, for example. They're not just constantly reading people's minds. But it's something they are able to do. And it got brought up periodically. Like, there's... Um, there's a scene where, uh, in, um, I think it's the deadly assassin, a Tom Baker episode where he's on Gallifrey talking to another time Lord. And he says, well, as you know, we time Lords are telepathic, which to me is like saying, well, as you know, we humans have red blood. Yeah. You know, it was right. like, what? <laughs> little artificial exposition here. <laughs> right. Right. Let's just yes. make sure you understand this slap, you know, <laughs> as you know, we have two arms. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but but Renette apparently has the ability during this mind meld to read his mind, which really mm -hmm. sets him on his heels. I mean, he really it's really uh, freaks him out. Um, and it's kind of interesting that she sort of she has this ability that's unlike anyone other any other human we've encountered so far, uh, at least in New Who. Um, and she really, yeah. I mean, he's really taken with her to the point yeah. where, by the end, he wants to take her away. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're, they're setting her up as, in a way, the doctor's equal. And that makes her a suitable, not just a suitable traveling companion, but a suitable romantic partner for him. Mm -hmm. And and that's something that you really need to have. in in uh, It's part of why River Song works, is because in mm -hmm. certain ways, she's the doctor's equal right. and is thus a suitable romantic partner. Rose is not the doctor's equal, and even though there can be flirtation between the Doctor and Rose, the two of them can never really get together because it would be creepy because he's he's her superior in a bunch of ways. And it, 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 you, for a romantic, for a real romantic partner, you need an equal. And, and yet by the end of Rose, Rose's time yeah, she on the show, she kind of becomes one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. Um, so. He wants to take – and the, the interesting thing is, is he wants to take her away. And for New Who, that would be really weird, pulling this 17th century or 18th century woman out of time to travel with him. Um, it, it's sort of problematic since she's someone who actually dies in the past. You know, in the past. Mm -hmm. we, we know her finite lifespan. Uh, maybe he takes her out of time and brings her back just before she dies or whatever. But it's not unusual in the sense – you know, for New Who, that's weird to take someone from the past – but for classic who, this is something oh, yeah. they did. We've seen it already yeah. in some of our discussions. Yeah, the the most probably the most famous companion of of that sort is uh, Vicky, who um, who or Victoria, who uh, traveled with the Second Doctor for a while, and she was actually from like the 18th century or something. Her dad was like a Victorian scientist who built a time machine out of mirrors and contacted Daleks or something. Um, <laughs> But uh, and Jamie, in Jamie also, yeah. yeah. This is actually a criticism of New Who that I've seen some people make. Uh, that what is the deal with with twenty first century contemporary London females? 
mean, mm-hmm. the classic series had way more diversity in companions than that. Yeah. And 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 frankly, I think we could use we do not need someone to be from our own time mm-hmm. to be able well, to relate to them as a companion. I'm I would like more diversity in the companions going. Well, forward. I, I think that's one of the complaints against Clara was instead of I think the original intention I'd read would was that she was the original Clara, the Victorian Clara was supposed to be the companion. And I don't know if it was the BBC or who it was kind of put this quash on that. And that's why she suddenly came back as a contemporary figure. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. As the root Clara. Right. Because it had her as the Dalek Clara first and then as the Victorian Clara and then then back as the contemporary. I have to say, I love the Victorian Clara's reaction upon seeing the inside of the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. It's just the best subversion of that moment where she, (laughs) instead of saying it's bigger on the inside, she steps out of it, runs around it, comes back in and says, it's smaller on the outside. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And it it freaks out the doctor a bit like, wait a minute, that's not what you're supposed to say. Um, And and that's that's an interesting point because I really think that Doctor Who would, would... benefit from taking people from some of these different times. Like we've, we've had hints at the idea of doing this. We had the um, um, Victorian era, a Silurian uh, and her companion, her maid companion. Uh, oh, the Paternoster, their... Paternoster gang. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had them for a while, but no, they were never going to really be companions, but like the doctor has connected with people from different times, but it would be nice to really bring in a, a, a long-term companion who's, Got that different perspective from the future, even. Yeah, but, and which they also had multiple times in uh, mm-hmm. Classic Who. Right, or I even at the, Time Lord. I mean, the closest we've had of that is Captain Jack. That's about as close yeah. as they've had in recent Who. And yeah. River Song, but both of those were just sporadic companions, yep. not exactly. long-term travelers. Right, right. I agree, I, and I, I like that idea. I mean, even if... Even if they'd brought on Madame de Pompadour for, I mean, I think that would have been interesting to have this known historical figure travel with the Doctor for a time, um, mm-hmm. knowing what we know about her history, mm-hmm. um, even if it was a romantic figure, which is problematic. But actually, there's a there is Big Finish has done that. Um, there's a uh, there's a sequence of Eighth Doctor stories where, where okay, so you know how the Eighth Doctor TV movie was like. Frankenstein, right? It was heavily influenced by Frankenstein. Yes. They make the doctor's regeneration like Frankenstein's uh, mm-hmm. coming to life and stuff. And um, and so there's this Mary Shelley Byron, and he's very Byronic himself. So yep. Byronic, not meaning bionic, but like the poet Byron. Right. Um, <laughs> and and so it's it, there's this connection to Mary Shelley's circle. And in a series of Big Finish audios, the doctor actually took Mary Shelley uh, from her time period in the early 1800s. And she became a, a Doctor Who traveling companion in these audios, which was great. Oh, wow. See, and then it then informed yeah. her later writing of, you know, early science fiction like Frankenstein. See, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it sort of hints at the the potential of Doctor Who that is not really tapped into. I mean, you're right that there's. I I think there is some valid criticism in that New Who has essentially been the Doctor and a 20th century woman, a London yeah. woman, yeah. Um, and usually it, usually in her 20s. Right. I mean, the fact is, is we're we're now 
broken out of that mold with the 13th doctors at, at least somewhat i mean well it's be mm-hmm. interesting to see what they do with the companions yeah, my guess I mean, is that they're still going to be contemporaries yeah they're yeah. still going to be 21st century uh, uh, uh londoners mm-hmm. and that i think that it loses i mean it, it loses some of the potential and it's it's yeah. playing it safe a bit. I, I just i wonder if, if it's easier for them and that's why they're doing it it's easier for them to write a contemporary figure than it is to try to fit a historic figure or a futuristic figure into this storyline i i think that's part of it part of it is they um you know, they think it's the audience can relate to this better. But part of it also is the is the ease of writing, because if you like if you took a historical figure today, the historical figure would bring with them, whether it's male or female, historical attitudes, which would not jibe with the BBC's hyper political correctness. And that would make it hard for them to do a historical companion. And if you do a futuristic companion, it's you have an imaginability problem. How right. do you how do you fully realize this future culture and where it's going to how it's going to be different than ours? And that's true. You know, I mean, we, we saw that with the, the 12th Doctor Christmas special with the first doctor. They made the first doctor almost into a buffoon because of his supposed. Anachronistic. Yeah. 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 Which, which they made him more misogynistic than he actually was. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Uh, and and with the, uh, the 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 story with Bill when they went to the big fish under the under the Thames, right? Um, and where they were talking about the culture of the time and sort of kind of pretending that it was much more progressive uh, than mm-hmm. in actuality ever was. Um, yeah, that that would be a problem. So now a way to cut the Gordian knot. Yep. Give us an alien companion, someone from another planet, <laughs> like Nissa. Nissa exactly. in, in in an episode we're going to talk about next week. Nissa is just she's not from Earth. She may be human in appearance, but she's not from Earth. Yep. And she's from an invented culture that can have whatever attributes are needed to mm-hmm. suit the story. Right. And in fact, the classic who had a number of uh, alien companions as well. Um, I, I, w- I wouldn't mind seeing a, a Gallifreyan companion even for mm-hmm. a bit. That would be interesting. Like we had Romana in the classic. Romana. Mm-hmm. Um. So the a couple of things that did, oh, and uh, Susan, of course, right, of course, is the grand. Now that would be interesting. Is to, to we had talked about that with the twelfth Doctor's final season, uh, that picture of Susan, his granddaughter, on his yeah. desk uh, that never got paid off, but it would be, it'd be interesting to see see that pay off uh, at some point. Once again, big finishes ahead of us. Multiple <laughs> appearances by Carol Ann Ford, continuing her story. Nice, nice, nice. Um. It seems like Big Finish is almost like a better standard bearer for the legacy of Doctor Who than the BBC is in the sense of <laughs> it really can be. Yeah, their, their their willingness to to kind of really explore the story. Yeah, and do things like they pick up on stuff that you could. It would be really hard to do on the show getting all the actors together. The most recent Carol Ann Ford story where she plays Susan, it, they have a series of stories where she gets together with the eighth doctor. Mm-hmm. And it's great to have Paul McGann, who's this much younger figure than her, than William Hartnell, but she's still calling him grandfather <laughs> and relating to him as grandfather. Right. And in the most recent one of those stories, it's a, it's a, it's a one shot. And she, um, he's, he's intercepting 
messages Gallifrey is sending her to summon her to duty in the time war. And he's mm. trying to shield her from getting into the time war. And she finally realizes what he's doing. And I, I won't spoil the ending, but it's it's really powerful. Oh, wow. Uh, if if the Big Finish Productions would like to sponsor the Secrets of Doctor Who and the SPD They totally Network, should. They, they yeah. would, they, we would be, we'd be welcome to uh, have a conversation about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe we'd have a spinoff show, the Secrets of Doctor Who, Big Finish. Um, so... Just a couple other things. Was We heard that line in the trailer that I played, um, you know, the monsters and the doctor, you can't have one without the other. And that seems sort of a to be a, a, almost a tagline for the whole series, which is, you know, wherever the doctor goes, uh, it was, actually there was a line, one may tolerate a world of demons for the sake of an angel. You know, that idea of, you know, it, the doctor comes with baggage, mm-hmm. um, but yet. There's so much benefit, as some people look, there's so much benefit to being with the doctor, traveling with the doctor, seeing what he shows you, that it's worth the risks of all of these monsters that you encounter. Uh, How about you guys? Would you travel with the doctor given a chance, given what we've seen of what we know of how dangerous it is? Given the companion death ratio? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's pretty good at saving them. Pretty good oh, at saving yeah. them. Most of most of them walk away from the TARDIS. Yes. Now, yes. It, it definitely changes you, and that yeah. you've seen throughout. You know, the yes. companions definitely drastically change. But yeah, it, it, it'd be incredible. I would think yeah, the ability to go back to your life uh, after traveling with the Doctor for a time. Uh, actually, um, if listeners would like to, to chime in, send us some feedback at Doctor Who at SQPN Would you? Uh, want to travel with the doctor, given what you know? I mean, I'm, I'm going to guess that most Doctor Who fans are going to say yes to that. I'd be curious mm-hmm. to hear from people who would say no. I just, just curious. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, you, you mentioned that about how it, you know, you mentioned about change you. Of course, there's the whole, we talked about that a couple episodes ago with uh, School Reunion with Sarah Jane Smith. How, how can you go back to ordinary life after everything that they've seen and done? Right, exactly. exactly. That would be the difficult part. The, so, the hardest part for me would be knowing about all the alien threats to Earth there constantly are <laughs> yeah. after after you've traveled with the doctor. I would be very paranoid after that. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, and speaking of like the dangers of traveling with the doctor, at one point, the doctor sort of abandons them, you know, gets them stranded in, in 18th century France, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, or strands himself in 18th century France, yeah. leaving Mickey and Rose stranded in the 51st century on a broken starship with homicidal robots um, in order to save Madame de Pompadour. Yeah. Which is not the most responsible action he's ever performed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and that's one of the reasons that I have, this is not my favorite episode. Um, I'm, it's okay, but it's this, I'm not a huge fan of this episode. Um, There's a lot in it that just feels kind of clunky and overly stylish. The style is good. I like the clockwork droids and things like that. But like crashing a horse through a mirror and stranding Rose and Mickey and the implausibility of some of the stuff connected with the clockwork droids and what they're doing. I mean, it it hangs together in a loose sense, but it's not tight. It's not tight. It's not the kind of tight, reasonable plotting that I like. It's mm-hmm. it's all it's more about the emotion and the style. And this episode suffers on the plot front. Yeah. I I would say for me, I 
I enjoyed it more the first time I watched it. Again, I was, you know, uh, I started my my uh, Doctor Who fandom like, with the with the new Who, and so I was still a relatively new wa uh, watcher of Doctor Who when I saw this, and I really liked this episode. There's something I, I'm a romantic at heart. I'm Sicilian, and that's the same thing, <laughs> and actually part French, so that's just a part of me. Uh, and that romantic romantic no uh, uh, notion, especially the tragic romance, really got to me. On subsequent viewings. It doesn't have the same pull for me. I mean, it's it's that first viewing where you don't know where it's going. But once you know where it's going, I felt like it didn't have the same uh, magic that it did the first time. How about you, Father Corey? Is it, wh wh how does this one uh, rank? I, you, you know, it, it, it's one of those I, I hadn't seen in a while, and I, I'm kind of I'm kind of like you, Dom. Where the first time I saw it, it was just you know, it's almost kind of a whirlwind episode where it's just constantly going from one to the next to the next to the next. Um, yeah. They're doing something very ambitious, which is trying to tell a, a tragic romance story involving the doctor in 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So it kind of has to be really compressed. But, you know, like you said, as you watch it later on at weekends, you know, I, I you know, it's, it's, you, know, you talk about the actual character of Renette, Madame de Pompadour. She's almost a little too smart for her own good. Yeah. You know, the whole, we talked about it briefly there about the, the where she, you know, she's almost a little too prescient. She's almost too aware of what's going on. And I've really never liked characters like that, where they just they're they're she's sort too of smart. Eight, yeah, she's sort of a of a 17th century Mary Sue. Yeah. Exactly. Very much so. Very much so. And that's that that's a difficult character to swallow, you know. There's there's not a lot of shock or surprise after the initial no, not even She's not even like really shocked by the doctor showing up in her bedroom as a child. It's like, uh, what are you doing here? Right. You know? It's like she expects a, ma a magical man to travel through the fireplace. And that's sort of so uh, sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. She it's also re she also is much more patient than Amy Pond. I think mm -hmm. that the second time Stephen Moffat did this story, he got it better. Because if you have this person show up in your life and then they vanish for years and years, that's going to it's not going to have the magical <laughs> happy yeah. reunion that we get here. Well, she she walks in the room and it's like, oh, well, my, my imaginary friend is standing here now. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, Although, it's like, what no about real... all the childhood trauma? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There, there was that good line where she walks in and says, you haven't aged a day. How unfortunate of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's very rude of well, you this, to not age a day. Episode, uh, this episode has some great one-liners. There's yes. some great Steve, quotes on this episode. Stephen Moffat's trademark. It's, yeah. It's an episode that does not age well, shall we say. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, now, to that said, this is an award-winning episode. Um, mm -hmm. uh, as we noted, it was nominated for a Nebula Award and won the 2007 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form, i.e. TV show episode. Mm -hmm. well, it's usually uh, For people who may not be familiar with those awards, uh, neb the Nebulas are, are uh, nominated and voted on by science fiction authors. Mm -hmm. And the Hugos are nominated and voted on by science fiction fans attending the sci-fi world con. 
Yes. Um, but uh, and formerly, they're the, the those are the two most prestigious awards in science fiction. Um, the Hugos in recent years have fallen on hard times and have been rather badly tarnished as a result. There, yeah. there's, there's some uh, controversies around the, hu- around the yeah. Hugos. Yeah, so. surrounding But this was before all that. Yeah, yep. this is when it was still prestigious. Um, and a number of Doctor Who episodes have won uh, uh, these awards at different times. Um, they, I found it interesting that uh, the neither the king nor the queen are jealous. We kind of talked about that. They're n- jealous of the doctor or of uh, Madame de Pompadour. Just it's a matter of business. Uh, and then at the end, um, we have this interesting plot device where the doctor and his companions um, are none the wiser about why this ship. Folk, you know, mm-hmm. focused on uh, Renette in the in yeah, the eighteenth century. The doctor thinks it was just a mistake of some kind, and and I like the fact that we finally we're knowing something that even the doctor doesn't know. That's nice. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. As we as we pull away, that the TARDIS uh, dematerializes, and we pull back, and the shot shows us the ship's name is SS Madame de Pompadour, which. Also, in a, in a sense, uh, it's kind of fun that in the 51st century, we're still going to have ships named after uh, a semi-obscure historical figures yeah. uh, like that. Um, it'll be nice. Um, wh- one one last thing is uh, Mickey, the, the evolution yeah. of Mickey. Uh, I, 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 I was going to bring that up. It's really nice to have Mickey as a functional member of the crew now. He's still mm-hmm. not yet the action hero he's going to become by the end of his arc. But he's no, he's so he's come so far yeah. from the off-putting, risible figure he was when he was first introduced. It's really nice to see him on board and performing, you know, not perfectly, but up to snuff. And mm-hmm. he even is perceptive enough that at the end of the episode, when the doctor has gotten back from watching um Madame de Pompadour's, you know, casket being taken away, and he's been given the letter by the king that she wrote him. And and Rose and Mickey both realize that the doctor, despite him saying he's fine, he's really emotionally broken up. And it's Mickey who has the presence of mind to say to Rose, you know, why don't you show me around the TARDIS and get her out of there so the doctor can be alone to process his feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's really – and, of course, in the next two episodes, we're going to see Mickey's – I think it's the next two episodes. We're going to see yeah. Mickey's mm-hmm. evolution into something whole, all, yeah, altogether new. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's – I like the way they've done this. They've they've evolved him. And, um, you know, he's kind of fun in this episode. It's, it's, it's always fun to see someone's first real journey in the TARDIS to something strange and unusual. And he kind of has – fun with it and and it's actually fun to see him and Ro- like Rose sort of introducing him to like you know that whole moment where the doctor says stay put don't go anywhere and then he leaves and and Mickey says to her, uh, so he's like well what do you think let's go <laughs> yeah, yeah like, exactly. we're going to go run off <laughs> this is what yeah. this is what it's about he also continues to have believable reactions to danger like when he realizes the doctor has stranded them in the 51st century and they don't know how to operate the TARDIS he he that's the reality right. of that sinks in on him real quick i think the next the next companion who's really that realistic in their reactions is is actually donna 
mm-hmm. you know, she has those realistic reactions to things, which which makes that that relationship so much fun um, is she's not the wide eyed, starry eyed girls that he's like Martha Jones and, and Rose uh, <laughs> at that point. And so that's a lot of fun when we get to that. But uh, so uh, any other thoughts? I've kind of gone through my thoughts on this episode. Any other things I've missed or you want to bring up? It's basically, oh, yeah, there is one thing. Um, the um, We have a real death in this episode. Yeah. And, and that gives shape to the story. And, uh, and this story would n- not be anywhere near as good. I mean, as I right. said, I'm not a huge fan. But it would be totally lame if... After having, you know, died, um, Madame de Pompadour then got taken out of time and brought back to life and given her own TARDIS to adventure around the universe <laughs> for an indefinite period before coming back. Yes. Um, so we have uh, for the first time, I'm, and this is really kind of it may even be the last time that Stephen Moffat gives us a death and doesn't somehow subvert it. Um, And it's unfortunate, but like in the Silence in the Library, Forest of the Dead pair that introduces uh, River Song, even though he does subvert the death there, the doctor has a line where he says, you know, death defines us and gives us shape. And if it wasn't for that, everything, every book, every biography would be a comedy. And and that's a real storytelling insight that Stephen Moffat had. And it's true if if you if, if and it's just unfortunate that he doesn't stick to his principles but in this case he did and i'm sure this this episode would not have been nominated for a nebula and won a hugo if it had a subverted death at the end well it's that it's the it's the doctor's reaction to the death of madame de pompadour the fact that he's not all powerful that he's not all wise that really sells this here you know, it kind of reminds me a bit of another Russell T. Davies uh, story, which is Voyage of the Damned, which was the, the Christmas mm-hmm. episode of 2007. Yeah, nice and, death for Christmas. I mean, what a holiday <laughs> yeah. tradition. But it was also like another another potential companion who was going to join the Doctor, this young woman played by Kylie Minogue, the, the singer, um, who was going to join the Doctor and uh, an untimely death uh, prevented her from, from that. Um, it, it, I don't know if that was, uh, that was not as successful as this one. Um, right. Davies is not as good a writer as Moffat and so in many ways. Um, but, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of an interesting, you know, a couple, this, it's sort of defined by yeah. how, right. how few times it happens in, in that sense. Yeah. And partly that episode, I mean, that episode is really the Poseidon adventure in space, mm-hmm. yes, whereas exactly. this is the time traveler's wife. This is focused on the relationship between the doctor and Madame de Pompadour. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, OK. So uh, anything else uh, we want to bring up? Um, just uh, in, in case people want to check out that big finish audio I mentioned, I don't want to leave people hanging. It's called All Hands on Deck. And uh, it's a. Uh, it's a short story read by Carol Ann Ford as Susan, and it's like three bucks on the Big Finish website, nice. bigfinish.com. All hands on deck if you want to check it out. All right. I'll try to get a sh- uh, link in the show notes for that. Um, and then 
Just one last geeky note, you know, I, I'm a classic video game player. I grew up with Nintendos, and I love Mickey's shirt. Know your roots with the NES Nintendo controller. Yes, right. Yeah, you know, we probably should do a, 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 a note in every episode about some of the shirts that both Rose and Mickey yeah. wear, because it's, it's sometimes there's some interesting uh, references in them. Um, so that, that'd be a, a fun little thing. So, okay, well, I think that's it from us. Um, what you know, listeners? What do you think of the tenth of this tenth Doctor story, the girl in the fireplace? Is it one of your favorites, uh, or is it uh, uh, you know something a little different? Let us know. Uh, visit us at sqpn.com or go to the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Leave us some feedback. Send us an email to Doctor Who at sqpn.com. Uh, we don't, love. Don't don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and share this with your friends. Yes, uh, we really want to try to you know expand the reach of our shows, especially the Secrets of Doctor Who. If you enjoy the Secrets of Doctor Who, uh, please recommend it to, to other people. Uh, recommend it on your social media. One thing that really helps is if you go to iTunes or I think Google Play uh, does this too. I'm a Apple guy, so mm-hmm. I'm more familiar with that. But go uh, leave a review. Uh, if you leave a, f- a five-star review, please don't leave one-star reviews, only five-star reviews. Uh, <laughs> that helps us. Uh, it, 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 it triggers the algorithms in the uh, computer servers to give us a little boost And when people search for things. Um, and frankly, you know, that's one of the reasons we call it The Secrets of Doctor Who, to really kind of encourage people to join us and to, you know, to enjoy this. Um, so if you can help us in that way, we would gre- greatly appreciate it. Uh, so you can find links to all of our personal social media and websites uh, on our show notes on sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the fifth doctor's first story, Castrovalva. Uh, until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Glad to be here as always. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. My pleasure. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening. And remember... You're Mr. Thick, Thick, Thickety, Thick Face from Thick Town, Thickania. And so's your dad. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.